about it. Good morning and welcome to the last episode in this series of Read All About It. I'm Shusi. And I'm Nuri Vitachi. And as always, we have two new books to introduce to you and one classic novel. And I think today it's your turn to go first, Shushi. What have you bought for us? Right. Well, I have a most unusual novel, which was released earlier this year in the UK to pretty good reviews and acclaim. And it's Scorpa by Rob Magnuson-Smith. That's a strange name. Can you just uh, spell the name Ooh, for us? Yes, I'll, I'll tell you more about that. It's S-C-O-R-P-E-R, Scorpa. And, okay, there's a number of things that are unusual about this book. Well, one for one thing, it's mostly in the second person, which is very, very few successful examples of this technique. I mean, the one Bright Lights, Big City by uh, Jay McInery comes to mind. That's one of the few that's done well with that. But it's also very oddly dark, and it's a gothic mystery novel of sorts. But mystery on the order of, say, Shirley Jackson's The Lottery rather than Agatha Christie's Miss Marple, even though it's set in what could almost be the equivalent of Christie's fictional village, St. Mary's Mead. So here's a novel about an American, a Californian, visiting England, and his name is John Cull, and he's a very unsettled mind, and it becomes increasingly more unsettled by the end of the book. And all this takes place in what appears to be the quiet, rural surrounds of the village of Ditchling. Now, this is a real village in East Sussex. Now, he's come on a kind of route search, because this is where his grandfather is, is from, and he's named after his grandfather. Now, the grandfather was a scorper. And what, you might ask, is a scorper? Well, this is both a chisel used for engraving and the name given to the craftsman who wields this chisel-like um, implement. So, now, the, the ancestral John Cull of this novel, he's a fictional character. But in the novel, he's set as somebody who's working or, or worked with a real historical figure, somebody who's really quite famous, Eric Gill, who lived in uh, the late 19th century and died in mid-20th century, and he was a sculptor. He's a typeface designer, and many of you might know the typeface Gilsons, which is on a lot of computers. He designed that. He was a stonecutter, a printmaker, and he was part of what we call the arts and crafts movement. But he was also a very controversial figure. You know, he had unconventional sexual practices, and he, he also engaged in erotic art and um, the abuse of children and animals. So not a very nice man. Okay, so here we have John Cull, you know, in search of his grandfather, if you like, um, who, who turns out to be somebody who worked for this famous Eric Gill. And he's on a kind of forced vacation from his job where he seems to have had a kind of mental breakdown. He's a copy editor for advertising. I guess that's the kind of job that would give you a mental breakdown. <laughs> and he wants to be a poet. And, you know, there are lots of poems going on in his head. And through the novel, we get these poems and they're appearing either in his notebook or actually in his head. Um, and, and Ditchling doesn't prove to be a very hospitable place. You know, he, he stays at a and b and it's run by a couple named the Swifts. And he finds a book um, at, uh, the, like, the local store by his grandfather, and it's titled Scorpa. It turns out to be sort of vanity press publish, and he tries to ignore this fact. He wants to sort of elevate it to something more artistic. And he carries it around, and he reads it, and he tries to understand his grandfather's admiration for 
Eric Gill. Um, and it, it turns out his grandfather was like an apprentice. You know, he was the scorper for Eric Gill. And he, he also kind of wanted to be an artist, but didn't think himself worthy. And he was sort of just apprenticing himself. And, and Gill is, of course, the local celebrity and Ditchling's main source of tourism all centers around Gill. And this is actually true. This, is, this village does have this um, to this day. So that's the setup of the story, you know, the sort of stranger comes to town, you know. Now, John Cull, he's, he's very tall with a big head. This is how he describes himself. And so he really stands out in this tiny village. And he feels all the whispers and stares of everyone who kind of thinks of him as the American. And, and this becomes a cause of anxiety throughout the book. And, you know, he's wandering around the village like a tourist. He's marveling at the peace and quiet. Because, I mean, coming from sort of California and the L.A. world, it, it's quite different. Um, and he thinks it's very quaint and charming. But then he starts to have these rather odd encounters. And, you know, conversations with locals suggest that maybe he's not welcome. They sort of make fun of him being from California, IA, you know. And the BB B is kind of run in a strange way. Everything's friendly, but there's some kind of sort of foreboding underlying sense. And then in the pub, he encounters a man named Eric Gill, who may be a descendant of the original Gill. And and Gill says he's unsure, and he's actually a little jealous of John when John shows him the book and says, see, I'm really a descendant of John Cole. And he looks at it and goes, well, I doubt anyone's ever heard of John Cull. So anyway, this Gill claims to be an artist, although he's currently out of work. And he says he wants to do a book. And John Cull gets very excited. And he says he wants to help. And these two become a pair in a way not unlike the original Gill and the fictional Scorpa. So the novel is actually many things. It's a book within a book because we have the Scorpa book within the book called Scorpa. It's kind of a looming mystery because... We soon begin to wonder if this Eric Gill is real. Um, the pr- protagonist becomes obsessed with him, but nobody else seems to see him except the mm. protagonist. So almost ghostly. He's almost saying? ghostly. And then he meets Margaret, a young widowed woman who runs a pizza place. Her husband was Italian and died in Ditchling quite mysteriously eventually transpires and he's smitten with Margaret, but she has a boyfriend, Kevin or Kev, who is this really loudmouth, angry, macho man who's kind of a big shot in Ditchling. He even went to Cambridge, we discover. And the longer we went our way through Ditchling with John Cull, the more of a conspiracy against him there appears to be. So it's a very sort of gothic, dark novel. But ultimately, I think what the novel is and what makes it quite interesting, it's and one of the um, reviewers described it this way, it's the mind in conflict with itself. But it's also, oh, also going, yeah, it's that very deep. deep, yes. The mind is also in conflict with the world as it is. It's, it's quite a philosophical novel. It's even a little political. And, and on some level, it explores historical and cultural imagination because here's this American who, who's trying to find his English roots, you know, how it shapes our desires. And, and John Cull is this sort of imaginative, he's a somewhat dreamy young man, He's had all kinds of disappointments in life. You know, he wanted, you know, I think he has a love affair that's broken down. His career isn't where he wanted to be. He's sort of a failed artist. And he's basically looking for life and love in all the wrong places. So he's got this kind of bleak worldview. But 
He has this really mordant sense of humour. And the novel is really, it's laugh out loud funny. You know, I found myself like really cracking up at, at parts of the book. And he has a truly engaging voice. Um, and I guess, I, you know, I really highly recommend this book. because it's a very unusual novel. I've never come across one quite like it. And it's only this writer's second book. And, and he's, he's done quite well. He's, he's um, an Anglo-American, so he's dual citizen. And, you know, he's done well in, in England, in America, and also in the UK, which is a bit unusual. Um, and I'm just like to finish off my section by reading the first two paragraphs to give you a feel for the voice. So this is Scorper by Rob Magnuson Smith. You're on your way to Ditchling. It's a Thursday afternoon in late March during the unfortunate year of 2012. The year of the bookshops are closing and the library's downsizing and the internet attempts its final stranglehold on the written word. You're an American. You're on vacation in the land of your English ancestors. The U.S. economy teeters on the edge of another recession and you'd better be back at work in a couple of weeks or you'll lose your job. Leaving Heathrow, you find yourself in the hands of your rental car's satellite navigator. She guides you out of the parking lot. She directs you to the motorway. Two hours in the company of her authoritative female voice pass without incident. Then, deep in Sussex, she tells you to exit the motorways onto a series of narrow roads. A sign says, South Downs National Park. It's difficult to see because it's raining. At a roundabout, you miss your turn and go around in circles, clinging to the outer lane like a sock in a dryer. <laughs> so that gives you a feel for, for the author's work. It's an unusual choice and uh, it doesn't sound like a, your standard uh, fun beach novel. Uh, why did you choose this book? Not exactly. Well, partly is I did meet Rob Magnuson Smith. He came here recently and he actually spoke to my students and he gave a wonderful lecture and he read from his book and I thought, I have to read this novel, so I did. Um, and also it's a good pairing with our classic, as we'll find out later. And that was Scorper by Rob Magnuson Smith. My choice is The Snowman by Joe Nesbo. Uh, Joe Nesbo is spelled J-O Nesbo, but despite that, it's actually a, a male writer. Uh, Joe Nesbo is the hot and happening thing in the uh, Nordic crime uh, genre. Another one, huh? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Of course, the famous one is um, Stieg Larsson, um, you know, the girl with the dragon tattoo, which, of course, has become um, a movie, a series of movies. But... Um, the, uh, I mean, you can see that the sticker on the front of this book is the next Stieg Larsson, says the Independent. So we can see that uh, he's being promoted as the, the hot new crime writer. Um, but what's it like? It's a, it's a multiple bestseller, millions of copies in all sorts of different languages. So it, uh, it does seem to be, he does seem to be fulfilling that uh, position. But is it a good read? Well, that's what we always want to know, yeah. <laughs> right. A couple of good things about The Snowman and a couple of bad things too. I mean, the the, the obvious problem uh, with the series is that it's about a middle-aged male detective who is a bit of an alcoholic who doesn't get on with his police station boss. Uh, in other words, as far as the, the uh, detective goes... We've heard it all before. It's a very familiar figure, yeah. yeah. We've heard it all before a thousand times. Uh, but that's a, that's a curiosity for me because um, uh, it doesn't seem to spoil it for the, for the people who read crime novels. The, the fact that clearly it seems to me that all detectives in fiction are actually the same guy. 
More or less. They just have slightly different names. <laughs> and that's where you kind of almost expect, you know, him to be this alcoholic middle-aged man who can't keep a girlfriend. And there's always a, a line in it where the, where the police boss says, you're off the case. And that's when he solves it, of course. So the detective is uh, is a fairly standard trope. Uh, so that's the that's the bad news. Uh, the good news it's uh, it's well written. It's fun. It's um, it keeps you guessing. And also, there's a Hong Kong connection. So uh, uh, when Joe Nesbo launched the detective, the detective is called Harry Harry Hole, which is a uh, a Nordic name. He's from uh, Norway. But uh, I, I suspect most readers call him Harry Hole, Hole because yeah. that's how it's spelled, H-O-L-E. Um, but, but Harry Hole is the uh, central character. And when the series was launched in the 90s, um, obviously the writer wasn't confident that anybody will be interested in this part of the world. Because in the first book, Harry Hole goes to Australia and solves a serial killing there. In the second book, he goes to Thailand um, and in the third book, which would have been in the early 2000s, he decides to stay at home in Norway. So uh, I wonder if the uh, writer was thinking, hey, hang on a minute, Nordic fiction is taking out, uh, taking, uh, taking <laughs> off. I think I'll keep him at home this time. But he's a very global detective then, yeah. isn't he? Yes. And then, um, uh, so he does a, a few books in the series set in Norway. And then he decides to move to Hong Kong, which is rather nice. Uh, unfortunately... The, he uh, none of the stories yet are set in Hong Kong. He commutes between Hong Kong and Norway, uh, and so we only see his life in Norway. But uh, I suspect it's a setup so that uh, soon we'll see an ex- an adventure of Harry Hole in in Hong Kong. Uh, anyway, the um, there's a there's a series of ooh, I'm not sure how many books, perhaps ten. Uh, but I'm going to talk about the seventh in the series uh, called The Snowman because that's the that's the biggest hit out of the series and that's the one that they're uh, going to make into a movie. Rumour has it uh, Martin Scorsese is uh, signed up to uh, to direct. Um, in this in this book, Harry Hole is digging up a strange uh, case uh, which uh, a woman murdered and there don't doesn't seem to be any leads uh, to go with this. Um, and as always, he goes through all the old files and tries to see if there's any anything that jumps out. And there isn't. Um, he compares it with another murder of a woman. Again, there's nothing that jumps out. Uh, and eventually he works out that there is one connection, although it seems very tenuous, that both things happened after snowfalls. So it's just the weather. But what happens after a snowfall? A kid will build a snowman. So he digs a bit deeper and finds there's a snowman built in each of these murders, and he realises that is the murderer's uh, signature. Um, So um, um, here we have... uh, He's exploiting this Nordic weather, really. Mm. I think one of the reasons why Norwegian crime has become popular is in your mind you have this completely white landscape and then these dark figures... Uh, walking across it, and there's something very, you know, primeval, archetypal about this uh, this sort of whiteness, and then these human figures on it. So, if you think of um, the Stieg Larsson books, or even uh, what's that TV series, Wallander? Oh, Wallander! Wallander's yeah. a big hit TV yeah. series in the UK. I think Kenneth Branagh was some some, some big actors oh. in there. Um, 
So Nordic crime, uh, big. Uh, anyway, so in The Snowman, uh, we start off with uh, the initial crime. Um, it's rather a horrible first chapter. A, uh, a child is driven to a secret destination by his mother, and his mother gets him to wait in the car, and... Uh, she, she and she says, "I won't be long, darling." And he, she goes into somebody's house, and he's actually she's having an affair, but um, leaves the child in the car while she has a a quick, a quick bonk, <laughs> oh, if we're dear. allowed to say that. <clears throat> and then she she comes back out all flushed and happy, and uh, and drives off uh, with the with the child. Um, and um, in fact, um, the child when when she goes back into the car. Uh, his expression has changed. And just let me... Uh, so the child... So they're in the car driving off. The mother, who's just had a, uh, an assignation with her secret lover, um, and they're driving off. The boy said something. She glanced in the mirror. What did you say? She said. He repeated it, but still she couldn't hear. She turned down the radio while heading towards the main road in the river, which ran through the countryside like two mournful black stripes. She gave a start when she realised he had leaned forward between the two front seats. His voice sounded like a dry whisper in her ear, as if it was important no one else heard them. We're going to die. That's what the boy whispers. Oh, that's, oh, 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 that's so ominous, the, isn't the it? The boy yeah. has seen something while sitting in the car outside mm. her, the, 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 her mother's lover's house. What has he seen? Uh, and, uh, of course, we don't find out for a very long time uh, in the book. Uh, I mean, that's the, that, that's the secret of good suspense, isn't it? You raise all these questions and then you just don't answer them. Exactly. Leave them as cliffhangers, right? For a very, very <laughs> long time. Keep those pages uh, turning. Um, anyway, for the for, for the people who um, who who like uh, a fun read that turns into a series, um, uh, I recommend Joe Nesbo and his uh, Harry Holey series. Um, but if you're a literary reader, you could be frustrated, I think, because the 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 the, the detective is too archetypal. And I can see all the, the people who, who choose the Booker Prize and all that saying, um, oh, not another detective with an alcohol problem and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and no girlfriend. So tell me why you pick this novel with its sort of bleak and forbidding landscape. Well, it's Christmas, isn't it? A good time of for murder. Of course. <laughs> well, it's a snowman, so uh, so we do have a, a Christmas uh, connection. Winter, and uh, it's actually a good holiday read because, like all good detective novels, good wins in the end and evil is defeated. We must have that, mustn't we? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely essential, especially for Christmas. Uh, that was The Snowman by Joe Nesbo. Okay, so for our classic this week, it's bleak, forbidding, disturbing, and we've brought Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte, which was published in 1857, which was uh, published at the time under a pen name, Ellis Bell. And that's right. Of course, um, Emily Bronte was one of three sisters, uh, all of whom were wonderful writers. And uh, um, and we did Jane Eyre earlier. That's right, series. we did. Um, although she was the middle Bronte sister, in some ways the most disturbed, I often think. She died very young. She was only 30 when she died, which is quite sad, you know. And she was the most sensitive one. Mm. She was the reclusive one, stayed home a lot. At, at one point, she left school because she got homesick. And she kind of became the homebody and, and didn't want to go out and she didn't do very well with people 
Yes, but what a what an amazing book she wrote. I mean, Wuthering Heights is a is such an icon, and the the uh, uh, the two uh, uh, disjointed lovers, Heathcliff and Catherine. I mean, their names have gone down in history as as icons of of pained love, really. And of course, we've had we've had movies, we've had operas, we've had uh, uh, we've had a hit single from Kate Bush in that's right, a wonderful you know? song. <laughs> yes. I love that one. But yeah, I mean, she did give us two of the great figures in English literature. Um, but, uh, you know, the story, it's, a, it's very much an ill-fated love story. Here are two people who are kind of a half-brother and sister. There's no blood relation because Heathcliff is the orphan who comes into the Earnshaw home, which is where uh, Catherine lives. And and it, they, they grow up together and he's kind of like this urchin that the father's brought back. But uh, Catherine develops a really deep affection for him. And But somehow through kind of, they, they're both kind of very wrong-headed and willful characters and circumstance also creates this. And fate, they each end up marrying somebody else. In fact, they marry a pair of brother and sister also, the Lintons, who are totally wrong for them. <laughs> you know, you know that they should be together. So we have this swirling uh, love and passion, strong characters who uh, who fate and society uh, keep apart. But also we have the, 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 the more the wind, the weather, the storms. I mean, the word wuthering, you mm. know, you can imagine this little house on top of a hill in a, in a bleak Yorkshire moor with the winds, you know, hitting the windows. That's right, the crumbling manor, which is how it actually opens, this Lockwood, the storyteller in, in this case. Uh, well, he's one of the storytellers. That's the other thing that's interesting about this book. It's a book within a book because really we're getting the story secondhand. Because by the time when the story opens, Catherine's already dead. In fact, she's kind of a ghost that sort of haunts Wuthering Heights, doesn't she? Right. Yeah. The, the book actually starts with the neighbor's house, uh, which is a, a radio unfriendly name. Thrush Cross Grange. <laughs> yes, totally. Uh, almost impossible to say, uh, and certainly can't say it three times very fast. But um, uh, so it, it's in, in some ways, it's the story of a place. It's uh, it's these two neighbouring houses, one very rich, Thrush Cross Grange, and one very poor, the sort of battered farmhouse, uh, uh, Wuthering Heights. And uh, like our previous two books, uh, it's very much as uh, the place is one of the characters in the story, really. Right. The place is a very, very big part of the story. And um, you can't imagine this book without the moors and the bleakness and all that horror. Um, but we also have a bunch of really horrible characters here. And this was one of the things that I think made Wuthering Heights such an important novel. It was one of the early books where you really had some really horrifying characters as the main characters. <laughs> it's a it's a puzzle. It's very much a flawed novel. It's uh, The characters are horrible. And the critics, when it came out, just generally hated it. They didn't oh. like it. It didn't sell very well <laughs> yeah. at the beginning. Um, but I think it, it took on a lot of, you know, Emily Bronte was writing it it's, she, she had a feverish imagination. She was very um, intellectual. She taught herself German at one point in her life, just at home. You know, she was a smart woman, clearly. And she, she imagined this multi-generational story because we have more than one Catherine. We have all these Lintons and Heathcliff levels. And it's almost quite difficult to keep track of all these characters because you're never quite sure who is who. But everybody becomes a sort of um, the descendants of Catherine and Heathcliff become sort of 
parallels for them. You know, they're sort of bred in the same image in a way. But they each take on something a little different because they have a different parent as right. well. I mean, to me, what made what made this lifted this book to be to be magical, to give it its power, is the fact that I mean, Heathcliff and Catherine are presented as lovers, but in fact, they're not. They never are. Nothing ever happens. They don't reach each other. To so have this, you know, universe-shaking love, and it's never consummated. So it's kind of an anti-love story in that sense. And um, it's the same with the ghost. Kath- uh, we start off with Catherine's ghost, and you think, "Wow, who was knocking at the window? We're going to find out." But we don't. The no, ghost. We, don't. we never find out. So it's a it's a it's a love story without love. It's a ghost story with no ghost. And I think it's this um, this. I, th- I think the message of the book is that unrequited love can be more moving and powerful than requited love. And it's uh, in that sense, it's unusual because in other um, sort of gothic romances, the romance actually... It you know, happens. Yeah, you actually like do marry... Air, yeah. yeah, you actually marry somebody in the mm-hmm. end. But here, nothing happens. It never is resolved. It's actually on some level more about passion and how that drives um, these two characters through the novel into some very wrong-headed decision-making, mm. really. <laughs> Yes. Uh, and if you want a modern equivalent, uh, I mean, a huge bestseller about a decade ago was The Bridges of Madison County. That's right. Which is yes. again about an unrequited love affair mm-hmm. to people who love each other but don't get together. Mm-hmm. So perhaps um, this is a, is a message that uh, the literary world gives to, uh, to us that sometimes it's, it's when it doesn't work that it's the most moving I think one other thing that makes Wuthering Heights quite notable is that um, it was sort of the beginning of a fe- feminist sensibility in literature. I mean, Charlotte Bronte certainly was. And, you know, the 19th century was where we began to see a lot of very important women novelists writing as well. You know, we said earlier that the novel is flawed and it's a bit melodramatic and the plot is totally implausible. But almost all that sort of goes out the window because we're talking very much about, you know, here's the limits of a woman's life in the reality reality of the 19th century. But yet there's so much going on. There's so much passion and emotion. And I think that that's quite important about the book. And it's studied a great deal. There are lots of papers on Wuthering Heights. <laughs> right, yeah. Yes, indeed. Uh, and also the, the central message is, uh, is, is, is that, that supernatural touch. I, I like it because it's sort of saying, it's saying love conquers everything, maybe even death. That's and right. That's like yeah. the ultimate sort of powerful. Mm-hmm. That's the message of art. It's the message of spirituality. It's the message of, of. Uh, it's the message that rationality is not everything. It's the human message, isn't it? That's right, and I think that's why it deserves its classic place in literature. Absolutely, and uh, I don't know. She's my favourite uh, of the Brontes. I know. You oh, pre- really? You I like Charlotte's Charlotte better. Yeah. <laughs> we, we can we can take off our jackets and have a punch up yeah. about that. But uh, I love the melodrama of Wuthering Heights. If someone taps on your window tonight. Might be Kathy. It might be Kathy. But but you know, I mean, is it is it really fair to compare the three Bronte sisters? Actually, no. Their lives are quite different, and but they, what they've given us is a debate that can continue on for centuries. And that's the end of Read All About It. It's the uh, the last episode of this season. Uh, so it's goodbye from me, Nuri Vitachi, and from me, Shusi. 